verses in the Bible. Let's pray and then we'll crack on. Good, that's working. Father, we love you and we love your word because we believe that inspired by your spirit, it lives in some way, interacts, engages, calls us and invites us to respond. And so we want to engage with scripture as we use the framework of the creed, what it is that we believe in order that we might not just live, but fully live, truly live, really live. And be so alive to what you're doing and to who you are and to what you're calling us to become. Strengthen our faith, we pray. Teach us. Convict us. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen. I believe. Uh, Two weeks ago we looked at I believe he was crucified. And I want to kind of just tie up one or two loose ends if I may, because it's such a massive subject. I I, I realise in the preparing of this um, series that actually if I just talked on the cross, I believe he was crucified. We could have done a whole sermon series and not exhausted the material. Uh, There are so many passages to look at in the New Testament. I found it very hard to know which ones to to alight on. And um, so I want to spend a bit more time on that. And can I just also, I want to sort of refresh this whole idea of belief, of faith. Um, I've been using the analogy of a chair and um, so forgive me if this is old hat for many of us, but it might be one or two of you have missed it. Kind of levels of faith. I believe that's a chair. Um, I'm going to sit in the chair. But the, the faith, the I believe that the Bible gets at is, um, you know, actually, actually doing that, sitting in a chair and deriving resource from it. But just to link up one or two themes or, or, or thoughts, a little while ago I was speaking, I think it was on Babel, Uh, last term and talking about this theologian um, Martin Buber who who, uh, talks about the different kind of relationships that we have we have relationships, a kind of faith relationship with inanimate objects like um, a chair and that's different, he differentiates those kind of reliances and connections um, if you like, with the relationships that we have with other people so that is an I-it relationship Whereas um, with people we have an I-you relationship. And that will grow and develop in the way that... I'm not going to have a relationship with a chair. So in a sense that that this analogy is inadequate because um, I can trust in the chair, but there's no sort of relationship growing. It's not going to dynamically change me or indeed the chair. Apart from goes, I guess, in the end the chair will wear out and collapse and I don't know, I'll have to get a new one. But it's it's limited, it's two-dimensional compared to the three dimensions of faith. And so is this idea of, of trusting in a person. And last week I did a little uh, exercise, I'm conscious a number of us were away, where I tried to illustrate the, what trusting in a person looks like. And I asked for volunteers, and there weren't too many children actually in, in the congregation, uh, but one of the people who put his hands up was, was Tim Young. Um, is Tim here? Yeah, Tim, excellent. Do you want to just come out? Um, I know Tim. Um, and Tim knows me, and he trusts me. That's the wonderful thing. Um, so I'm going to sort of just demonstrate now what faith in a person, or faith in an inanimate object, looks like. I'm going to just take away Tim's sight, like that, so that he can't see. I'll just test that. And um, Tim, all I'm going to do is just direct you back to your seat. Okay? Yeah. Great. So do you want to just turn right a little bit on the spot? 
and just shift left a little bit. Okay, uh, good. Okay, on my command, I want you to run six paces. Okay. Run. <laughs> yeah, that was three, so Tim can't count. Um, <laughs> okay, let, let's, let's pause there a minute. That's, that's quite interesting little illustration, isn't it? Because um, I, I reckon you were going to miss Mary, uh, 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 how I'd lined you up. So I reckon six paces was about right. But you got to three and, oh, I'm not sure now I can trust the voice of the person, so I'm going to rely on my experience. I think, from memory, Tim is saying to himself, and I would do exactly the same, just to be fair to Tim, um, I think I'm sitting around about here. And he's lost trust and confidence in me because he's now relying on his senses. Do you remember Peter? Get out of the boat to start with. Jesus, come out of the boat, walk on the water. Peter goes, right, okay. Then he sees the waves. And that's when he starts to sink. Tim, um, you're, you're lined up perfectly. Just take, um, just take one step forward. Okay, just shift a little bit left. And a little bit more left. Uh, and, and now I'll do some, because it's relational, I'll do some explaining. I don't want you to walk into Mary. Okay, so just take another little shift left. Great. Now just walk straight ahead. One, two, three. Stop. And is that where you were sitting? Yeah. And now just turn 90 degrees left. And um, now just gently inch your way forward. You should be, you're on the edge of your seat. There's the pole. Yeah. Okay. And do you recognise where you are now? Good. Okay. Have have a seat. You'll find, I think that's Ross there. Well done. Take care. Let's give Tim a hand. And that's what faith is. It's, it's actually, I'm, 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 I'm consciously not going to rely on my own strength. My past experiences, my memory of where I was sitting, of, of patterns of behaviour and patterns of living that I've done day by day, week by week. I'm not actually going to rely on them. When I wake up in the morning tomorrow, I'm going to say, first thing, Lord, help. A bit like the prayer that Ursula's friend prayed. Lord, I just need you to direct me today. And I want to be online and in tune with you for every single phone conversation that I have, every single email that I do, every encounter that I have, every project that I'm given, Lord, please, I want to be able to hear your voice, as it were, uh, and to be patterned by you, directed by you. That's what faith in the I-U relationship is like. I believe that Jesus Christ was crucified, and then you'll see on the sheets, just one little word, died. Crucified died. In other words, Christians believe that when he was crucified, he was crucified to death. You may say, well, I know that's him. But it's just worth dwelling on this for a moment. Jesus Christ died. I say that because there are some theories that were around two or three centuries ago now. They were quite prominent in what was called the Enlightenment period, which is ridiculous, really, when you think of the intellectual paucity of this theory. But during this period, there was a popular theory, it became known as the swoon theory, which was simply that Jesus on the cross didn't actually die. Um, Because of the pain and the intense suffering, he fainted. And they mistook the faint for death, took him down off the cross, wrapped him in these cloths, shoved him in a cold stone tomb. And in that cold stone tomb, the, the, the the coolness revived him. And so um, after two or three days, he, he sort of came to, as it were. And um, amazingly, he was able to push down a, well, 
one or two ton boulder that had been rolled in front of the grave. He was able, um, not having had any serious medical attention and no food or drink for two or three days, he was able to overcome a Roman guard of about four or five trained soldiers who had been posted there, according to the Gospels, to guard the tomb. And then he was able to make his way on the road to Emmaus at a pace faster than the disciples who were walking, because we record that Jesus caught them up. Um, and able to appear to them in such a way that they were convinced they were looking at the Lord of life. So there's a few miracles involved if you go with the swoon theory, but the whole point about the swoon theory is that Jesus didn't die, so he was just sort of resuscitated. And as we'll come on to see later on, one of the creedal statements is, I believe in the resurrection, the bodily resurrection, that God took his dead body and gave it new life. Miraculously, I don't understand how he did that. That's faith. That's trusting in what I hear and receive of God, not what I think I understand by any other senses. I believe in the resurrection. But in order to believe in the resurrection, a brand new life given by God, I need a priori to believe in Jesus' death. So um, Jesus died. The last words on the cross, it is finished. The full price, the full penalty paid. The eternal God in human form stays on the cross. Soaking up, attracting, rather like a magnet with iron filings. Attracting all the penalty and the power, the efficacy of sin. From generations past and generations future. This is the eternal God. It is an eternal act. Once For all, every single sin soaked into his body so that when every sin is there, he is so cut off from God. He's able to cry with his last breath, it is finished, the price is paid. And when he dies, all the power and the penalty of sin dies too. So sin is still around. But if we really believed in Jesus Christ crucified and died, it is finished. We would really believe that the power of sin is forever broken. The penalty of sin, which is ultimately death, no longer need haunt us. Rendering so futile our current lives now, if it all just ends in death and extinction... No, there's a way through death. And we, be- we can begin now to live the life of eternity, of fullness, of wholeness. Sin has been dealt with. It's a bit like you walk down the road and one of your neighbours has got one of these Rottweiler dogs. And uh, it's a massive thing. You've got gleaming teeth and it sort of dribbles saliva. And then you discover one day that the owner has had every single tooth extracted. <laughs> and whereas before you could fear that if that got dog got near you, it would sink its teeth into you and really bite you, now, I mean, it's there, it still barks, it's still a dog, but it's rendered powerless that you just sort of gum your leg to death. And so you can walk past that dog, it's real, it's there, but you can walk past it with a renewed confidence. That's a whole new state of being. It's powerless. I love the story of Wesley. Apparently he was uh, asleep and he was awoken with a start in the middle of the night. And uh, there, at the end of his bed, was, was someone, who, who's that? Who's at the end of my bed? Terror seized him. 
And as he kind of, you know, rubbed his eyes and he looked again, he saw that it was the devil. The devil incarnate there at the end of his bed. Oh, said Wesley, thank goodness for that. It's only you. (laughs) And went back to sleep again. Because he knew his position in Christ. He knew what Christ had done. Crucified, died, finished. (laughs) You're like a dog with no teeth. Two more images of what God has achieved for us in the cross. And here we'll come into Romans 3, and particularly verse 24. These uh, verses of scripture densely packed with uh, theology. They're rich in truth for us. Uh, we looked two weeks ago at expiation, propitiation as part of the atonement, the, this sort of temple image, an, an everyday scene for people in Jesus' day of, of the priest going to the temple and making sacrifice to expiate, cleanse sin and to propitiate, to deal with God's anger so that sin is completely dealt with and we can countenance the possibility of coming into God's presence. That's a temple image. Two more images today. One is from the law court and one is from the marketplace. And uh, let me just read the situation. Chapter 3 and verse 23. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. The law court image and justification Justification is a legal term. To be justified is to be acquitted. Uh, Put, if you like, in the negative sense. Justification is to be found not guilty. To put it more positively, it is to be found or declared righteous. You're in right standing with the law, if it's in a law court. In a spiritual sense, you are in right standing with God. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But justification means that we stand declared right before God. And that's what God has done in Christ. How how does that work? How does that work without compromise? Let me tell you this story. It's a story of two boys who grew up together, as thick as thieves. They were, they were so close all the way through preschool, primary school, and it was a real bonded relationship. And they went to secondary school, and, and, and there they kind of passed, diverged a bit. One did really well at school. He excelled, uh, passed all his exams, went on to, to university, studied law, uh, and uh, went to practice as a barrister. Eventually, he became a judge. But his friend, the other one, had kind of dropped out of school a little bit. He didn't go on to further education and um, hit hard times, actually. Found himself drawn into a life of crime. The crime became more and more serious until eventually, in order to fund a serious drug habit, he'd committed a murder and he found himself in court, accused of the murder. And who should be the judge presiding over the case but his one-time long-term friend? A real dilemma for the judge in one sense. Because as the case is heard and the jury retire, they come back and it's a unanimous verdict. The defendant is is guilty. And the only sentence that the judge could pass at that time in that country was the death sentence. He knew that if he was going to exercise his role and his duties with integrity, he knew that if he was going to be seen to dispense justice, which is exactly what he was called to do as a judge, he had to pronounce the death sentence. And so he did. He pronounced the death sentence on the defendant, his one-time friend. 
But then, in an extraordinary act of initiating grace, he took off his wig, he took off his gown, he stepped down from the bench and went into the dock and effectively took the sentence of death upon himself. And it's a picture, not a perfect one, but it is a picture of what God has done in Christ for us so that our sin might be paid for and we might go free. We might be counted in legal terms, acquitted, justified, declared not guilty, declared righteous before God. God himself has borne the punishment. There was a, I used to go to these um, uh, sort of scripture union camps when I was a, a teenager and we sang these little sort of choruses um, and there was one that summed up this justification perfectly. It went like this. At, I won't sing it, I'll just say it, don't worry. At the cross of Jesus, pardon is complete. Love and justice mingle. Truth and mercy meet. Though my sins condemn me, Jesus died instead. There is full forgiveness in the blood he shed. Now I say that the picture of the, the judge and the criminal is sort of a little bit incomplete because we perhaps listen to that story and understand the kind of legal image in our 21st century sort of Western legal practice. Uh, and the reality is that in Jesus' day there was no sort of crown prosecution service. There was uh, no sort of uh, impersonal lawyer standing up on behalf of the state uh, in a sort of rather detached or impersonal way. In Jesus' day, justice was carried out much like our civil courts really. The accuser and the accused kind of, you know, they argued it out between themselves in front of a judge within the context of the community. So justice in Jesus' day and in Israel was a far more personal and engaged and relational practice. Um, if the, um, the one being accused had committed a crime that impacted the community, if he was found guilty, there, I mean, there were huge consequences that went beyond whatever punishment was meted out. But more importantly, from the point of view of the accused, is that if he was acquitted, if he was found not guilty, then immediately, there and then, he's repatriated and reconciled with his community. It, it, it's far more of a, everyone can see as the judge pronounces, you're justified, you're acquitted, you, you can go free. Then he's immediately received back and, and, and can weave himself back into reconciling relationships with the community in which he lives. And it's, it's that kind of very earthy and relational uh, image, if you like, or reality, that Paul will have had in mind as he talks about justification that's what the so remarkable about the, the but now in verse 21. Um, various commentators, among them Martin Lloyd-Jones, a great preacher, argues that but is one of the most hopeful words in the New Testament. Because what's gone before in Paul's argument here is that uh, in chapter 1, um, through what's just as obvious to everyone, Paul argues, the Gentiles stand condemned. Those who've refused to recognize the wonder of God in creation, in nature. As we look about, the signs, the rumors of God, if you like, all around. If you've had your ears open and your eyes open, you can hear and see. And therefore, to ignore him 
It's not just a bit of a while, I'll get around to it one day, apathetic, I'm sure God will let me off. No, there's been enough evidence. You Gentiles stand condemned, but you Jews, don't you get complacent? Because God gave the law, and what's happened is the law has acted as a signpost to show just how far short you fall of God's standards. And so, look, chapter 3 and verse 9. What shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage, Paul, addressing his Jewish audience? Not at all. We've already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. And so verse 23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But, but now, Jews were thinking that God was going to act at the end of history. And Paul says, no, but now, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. And some people say, well, it, oh, the righteousness of God, well, that's obviously Jesus. Paul's referring to Jesus. But, but look, in verse um, 22, this righteousness, this righteousness of God, is given through faith in Jesus Christ. It's clearly something separate from Jesus. It's not that we receive Jesus in faith by, with Jesus. And uh, there's been a lot of discussion recently about what the righteousness of God actually means. Is there a lot of discussion over that preposition. Is it of God or from God? And um, without going into it, it's a bit of both really. This righteousness of or from God is effectively a new covenant relationship. It is the means by which God in his grace and initiation invites us into reconciled relationship with him, saving and healing relationship with him. It's the way in which we might truly live in the way that God has initially designed us to live. This righteousness from God. And so we get this, this sense of the, the righteousness, the justice, and the relationship caught up in, in, in this passage here from Paul. God has to do right. He is the judge who acts justly. Verse 26, he did it. This, this, this uh, uh, justification, redemption, this, this, this atonement in Christ. He did it, verse 26, to demonstrate his justice at the present time. So as to be just. And the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. He's the judge of all the earth. He has to do right, but in his love, he's made it possible for us not to come under the consequences of judgment, the penalty of sin. He's found a way to bear the penalty of sin in Christ so that we might come free. We are justified. Second image is the image of the marketplace. Again, very commonplace in Paul's day. The law court and legal cases happening all around. And the marketplace, every... Um, a town or village or city would have had a, a marketplace and it was common in those days when there was no sort of uh, credit or higher purchase agreements you know often um, individuals fell into debt and sometimes the only way in which you could get yourself out of debt was to sell yourself into slavery you offered yourself as a slave in order to work off your debt and so you would there would be in the Roman slave market there would be a place set aside for those in slavery but often what would happen is Roman citizens would come and out of a kind of gracious magnanimity, they would look at the price of a slave, maybe you've got into debt by, let's say, a thousand pounds. And they'd say, well, I'll pay the thousand pounds. It was paying a ransom. I'll pay that ransom and you may now go free. The price of your slavery, if you like, has been paid. You can go free. 
And when that happened, the person who was in slavery, who was then set free, was said to be redeemed. They were redeemed. The price had been paid. So look with me at verse 24. We sin, fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely, declared righteous by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God has bought us out of the slavery of sin. He's paid the price, which was Jesus Christ, and specifically his death, the shedding of his blood, the sacrifice. In order that the price of sin is fully paid and we can walk free. Redemption and justification. Two everyday images of what it is that the cross has achieved. And elsewhere, the New Testament talks about reconciliation, a kind of family metaphor, I guess, where there's been a a separation of two parties and whatever it was that caused the separation has been dealt with so that those two parties can be reconciled. And I guess we come full circle, don't we, to what I was speaking on a few weeks ago, uh, where God the Father has chosen to adopt us into his family. We're no longer slaves because we've been redeemed. But God doesn't just leave us to wander around. It's not like you know, that thing in the life of Brian, a slightly sacrilegious bit where uh, the guy's walking around, arms for an ex-leper, arms for an ex-leper. You know, Jesus, he came along, he healed me. Oh, that was my living. I used, to get, I used to get money out of being a leper. But he healed me. So arms for an ex-leper. I mean, that's, it's, it's, it's a sacrilegious part of what's you know, quite a funny film. Because Jesus doesn't just buy us out of slavery and then leave us. So we wander around going, I'm an ex-slave, I'm an ex-slave. God adopts us into his family. We're sons. We're reconciled. We're right at the heart of God's family plans for the whole of his creation. And that's the atonement, the dealing with sin. Let me just get this up. So that we can come as sons into God's family. Atonement is being made at one with God. If you like, it's literally at one Justified, redeemed, reconciled, adopted. That is what God has achieved for us in Christ on the cross. Do you notice the tenses I've been using? This is what he has done. Past tense. God is the subject. We are, if you like, the, the object, the, the, the recipients. People often, uh, when I talk to uh, people about the Christian faith and, and invite them to consider whether that's something that uh, might guide and shape and fuel and inspire their lives. And very often the question comes, quite understandably, what do I do? What do I do? And in one sense the answer is nothing. Because God has already done everything that is required for us to come into this relationship with him. Indeed, part of what we do is to recognise that there's nothing we can do. He's already done it. But what we can do is to begin to enter into what I might call the divine human cooperative. Where we receive the forgiveness and the new life that Jesus brings. That's why in the creed we have that line later on. I want to pick it up now and link it with crucified, died. Is I believe 
in the forgiveness of sins. In other words, if, um, if in a sense, we're sort of stating all these uh, wonderful images and terms, justification, redemption, reconciliation, adoption, as I believe in the chair, that's what God has done, that's what that chair is. There's a sort of so what that's implied. And the so what is that because of all these things, or because this is a chair I can sit in it, And because God has acted in Christ, I can now live in the full and safe and secure and freeing knowledge of the forgiveness of sins. But how? And the word which you'll be familiar with is repentance. Repentance literally means to It's a military term, actually. It just means to stop marching in the way in which you're marching. To stop and to about turn and to walk in the other direction. It's to recognise the way in which you're going. Stop, about turn and walk in the other direction. And just for the last few minutes, I want to unpack what repentance involves. Because it involves a recognition. Apparently one of the tributary streams or rivers that flows into the Niagara Falls has a particular point and it's marked with a sign on the riverbank and it's the point at which you need to turn around if you're going to have enough strength to row against the current and not be swept over the edge. If you go beyond that point, the current picks up quickly, you won't have the power to resist it and you'll be swept over the edge. The locals call that point repentance point. It's the point at which you need to recognise that if you do not act now, you're heading to certain death. So stop and turn around and go in the other direction. And we need to recognise that. There needs to be space. I want to suggest maybe as a Lenten exercise, Ash Wednesday in in 10 days' time, uh, I wonder whether over this Lent we, we could carve out significant space to go through these steps. Take some time to recognise where your life is heading if you're outside of God, where elements of your life are heading even though you're known by him. Elements where you need to recognise the danger of the compromise with the world that you're engaged in and determine to repent, to turn around. Second, within repentance, is is to request. I think so often we recognise that God can forgive sins, but we never ask him to. James says, you do not have... Because you do not ask. Spend some time saying, Lord, I I really want to receive the forgiveness that you offer. I want to know that I'm justified. I want to know what redemption feels like. I want to experience reconciliation. I want to live as your son. Will you confer on me, through Christ, those rights and privileges? Ask. Take time asking. Know that you've made that request to God. Renounce. I wonder whether you've ever done this as part of repentance. struck me uh, with the baptism last week. Some of the things that we ask the uh, parents and godparents to do. Do you reject the devil and all rebellion against God? Do you renounce the deceit and corruption of sins? Do you repent of the sins that separate us from God and neighbour? Do they sound familiar? 
every month or so we rehearse them here. People stand up and declare, yes, I renounce the devil. I recognize evil. I don't want to flow down the road of evil. I don't want to be swept away. I want to renounce it and to reject the devil. And actually, to give him a jolly good kicking. Just to remind him what has happened, what Christ has done on the cross. To tell the devil, if needs be, to go to the foot of the cross and look at his future. You can do it with a dog with no teeth. They're both sitting there, powerless. And to walk in that recognition. To renounce the devil. To renounce his schemes that, that confuse, that stop me living the life that, that God designed me to live. Why should Cliff Richard... Where's Val? Not here. Um, Cliff Richard sang a little while ago, didn't he? Why should the devil have all the good new music? Oh, if Val was here, we get her to sing the first verse, but she's not, so Val's a great Cliff fan. Um, why should the devil have anything? Actually, I'll just stop at the good music. Why should the devil have anything? God made everything for the good to, to give glory to him. Why should the devil spoil any of that? As part of our repentance, to renounce that. I hate what you do, devil. Get out. I think we should be a lot more bullish in our Christian lives together if we really believe all that we say we do when we recite the creed. Finally, to replace. This, this was something that was such a revelation to me and I, I think this was why I struggled to live the life that God called me to live for so long. Because I recognised, sort of more or less did from time to time, all those things. I recognised that I needed to turn. I requested God to forgive me. I, I stopped and turned. I repented. I, uh, I, you know, people had encouraged me to renounce the devil. So why did I slip back into sin again? Why did I slip back into old ways and old patterns of being and thinking? Because I hadn't spent enough time working on replacing. The slave bought out of slavery is barefoot, a mark of slavery. So what does the father do who adopts the son? He puts sandals on his feet. He replaces bare feet with shoes. He takes off rags, he puts on robes. No son would be barefoot in his father's house. No son would wear rags when there are robes to be worn. The life and lifestyle is replaced. What is it that has activated sin and unbelief and disobedience in your life? Recognize it. Repent, renounce the devil's schemes. He loves to energize and activate, activate things in your life that will draw you away from God. So reject that, renounce that, and then in the vacuum, in the gap that's created, replace. I used to cycle to work, uh, in my previous job, I used to cycle to work past an advertising hoarding. And there were various adverts go up, and for a little while there was an advert. Um, going up. I can't remember what the product was, I'm ashamed to say, because all I can remember is that there was a woman who was advertising the product and she didn't have too many clothes on. And I cycled past and I thought, oh, that's quite an attractive um, aspect of God's creation. <laughs> and the next day I thought, oh, I'm going to cycle past that advert and there'll be that woman. Oh, I'm looking forward to... And then I thought, oh, no, I mustn't, I mustn't, I mustn't. No, no. And the next day I cycle and I think, oh, don't look at the woman, don't look at the woman, don't look at the woman, don't look at the... Don't look at the, don't look at the Lord, I don't want to do that. I can recognise what this is doing. This is fouling up the way I think. It's fouling up the way I, I see members of the opposite sex. It's, it's dragging me down. I don't want that. Devil, I hate the way that you're kind of drawing me into that thing. Please forgive me, Lord. Please forgive I'm sorry. Please forgive me. I receive his forgiveness. You're a son. That the power of sin has been dealt with. 
Now, the next morning, which way am I going to cycle? Is there only one way to cycle to work? Or can I actually replace the way I was cycling to work with a slight detour? The answer is yes, I can. And there's, there's my choice. To replace activity so that I'm not tempted and not drawn into sin. So that I can arrive at work knowing that God's victory is emanating and manifesting itself in my life at that time in that way. I believe in Jesus Christ crucified, died, it is finished. I believe in the forgiveness of sins. I believe that we can live lives free from the power of sin. We can overcome temptation. We can live lives that radiate and emanate the kind of prayer answered things that Ursula was talking about earlier on that attract people. I believe people, in, you know, as, if we were to live like that as Christians, here in this place, I believe they flock from the white horse and from the green and from everywhere around about. They'd want, to know, they'd want a taste of real life, of living victoriously, living free, because of what God has achieved for us in Jesus Christ, justified us, redeemed us, and set us free. Amen. Amen. <coughs> Thank you.